The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. All right, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open it up to Jeremiah chapter 29. We are in a new uh, series, started last week, trying to understand um, the unique cultural moment in which we live and our place in it as followers of Jesus. How we can best represent King Jesus here and now in the life that we live. And I don't say this often, um, but if you missed last week's message, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to that because what we did is we laid a foundation that will carry us for the rest of the series. So um, you might not know this. Um, I recognize some people in my own community group didn't know this, but we do podcasts. We have the audio of our sermons that are on uh, Apple and Spotify and all kinds of other platforms. Uh, every week they get posted there. Also, our YouTube channel, Uh, if you're not already a subscriber there, you can find our services that are streamed live, and uh, we keep those up every week as well, so you can go back and find a way to uh, watch or listen to that. So last week, we laid a foundation um, using the four movements of the gospel, creation and fall and redemption and restoration. And um, if just as a a reminder, um, culture we defined as essentially what people do with the world, Okay? Anything that we produce, interacting with each other and with God's creation, that becomes, that is culture, okay? And so for us as believers, knowing how the world was meant to be in creation, knowing why it broke in the fall, um, knowing what Jesus came to accomplish in his life, death, and resurrection for the sake of our culture, and knowing what it will be one day gives us solid ground in this ever-changing culture that we live in, the culture of now. So if last week we laid a foundation, then to continue the metaphor, today we're going to be framing up some walls, okay, Uh, as we construct this thing to help us understand. But before we do that, I want to just sort of pose a question to you, and this this gets you thinking about all the different ways that that we interact with culture. Let's assume uh, that you're, uh, let's assume we're all coffee drinkers in the room, okay? Um, there are coffee drinkers and people who need to repent and become coffee drinkers. That's the way I see it, but no, it's fine. Don't drink coffee, save the rest for me. Let's say your favorite coffee shop, whether it's a, a big name one or a local independent coffee shop, let's just say that that coffee shop um, has stances on a variety of issues that do not seem to align with Christian conviction, I know it's a wild hypothetical, but just go out on a limb with me. Hmm. Okay, what's our response? How should we interact with that business, with that coffee shop? Should we boycott it? Should we call all Christians to boycott that business and pressure them into changing their stances so that it fits our cultural, our Christian convictions? Should we limit our interaction with that business, trying to go there as infrequently as possible uh, and abstaining? Should we 
Should we just, you know what, open our own Christian coffee shop and compete with them so that other believers don't have to go to theirs but can come to our place? Should we, should we actually frequent that coffee shop more and more and interact with the workers in the hopes of sharing the gospel with them? Or should we just do nothing at all, just continue living our lives normally and not even think about the fact that this business holds different values than we do? And some of you are saying, that's why I'm in this series. Tell me what to do. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, it's not that easy. Okay? So the reality is, um, there are little decisions every single day of our lives that we can think about these kinds of issues. And how do we engage? How do we interact with the world that we live in? And depending on your tradition and your upbringing and, and your, your sort of... Um, field of Christianity, you might have a different answer to that question, a different way that you would respond, and you think it's obvious, and everyone else is wrong in their way of doing it. There's a lot of nuance to how we interact with the world at large. And so in Jeremiah 29, what we're going to see is um, three approaches to the culture, okay? Okay. Um, you may be familiar with Jeremiah 29, but if you're not, I'll give you some context after we read these verses. I'm going to read uh, the first 11 verses of Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, you can follow along with me if you have your Bible open. Um, I forgot to write down the page number, so if you have a black hardback one and you want to call out that page number, um, go ahead. And then um, we'll start reading here. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You're going to have fun reading that in community group, I'll tell you that much. It said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what a joy to be together. What a joy to dedicate all of these children to the Lord, the next generation of this congregation. We give you great praise um, that um, 
our church families are being fruitful and multiplying and that these men and women care deeply enough about their faith that they want to pass it on to the next generation. So help us, Lord, to be a church family who loves and cares so much for these kids that we train them up in the way that they should go. We thank you for this time in your word. Pray that it is beneficial to those hearing it. Um, I don't assume in a room this size that everyone is a follower of Jesus, but I pray that um, believers would be encouraged, that unbelievers might be, um, have their curiosity piqued, be intrigued, that you might bring um, encouragement, conviction, challenge. Holy Spirit, please come. Please fill me and empower me that I might rightly divide this word so that it is beneficial to those who hear it. We love you. We thank you for this time of study and ask your blessing in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, so just to give you a little context, since we're jumping into the book of Jeremiah in chapter 29, um, God's people were called to be a light to the nations, okay? But they have rebelled, And the first 24 chapters, in fact, of the book of Jeremiah are uh, rebuke towards the Israelites for their idolatry and their corruption. 24 chapters worth. The Babylonians were the, the dominant power of the day. They actually came in in 597 BC and they conquered Jerusalem and they carried off God's people and became, and they became exiles in the land of Babylon. The Jews found themselves, the Israelites found themselves as aliens and strangers in a foreign land. These were a people with a radically different belief system, a radically different culture. The Jews now did not have a temple. They did not have a place, a center in their community for which to worship. And their question that they are wrestling with is, how do we as the people of God, how do we as Israelites... How are we supposed to live among this people with radically different beliefs and practices and culture than we are used to? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a question that maybe we wrestle with ourselves in the world that we live in. And there are multiple competing agendas. So first, I want to look at the agenda of the Babylonians. Okay? What was the goal of these Babylonians? I mean... These were a people who hated the Jews and they hated God. So why on earth would they carry Jews back with them to Babylon? Why wouldn't they just smoke them all and kill them and defeat them? Why bring people back with them? And the answer is adoption. And I don't mean it in like a familial sense. I mean, they wanted the Jewish people to adopt Babylonian culture. So if you're a note taker, the first thing you can write down here is the danger of cultural adoption. The danger of cultural adoption. Now, to be clear, for the Jews, this was no picnic, okay? The the Babylonians were wicked and oppressive. In fact, if you keep reading in the book of Jeremiah, you'll see that a different king of Jerusalem, uh, he actually is captured and they kill his children in front of him and then gouge out his eyes so that the last thing he saw was the Babylonians murdering his children. This is how wicked the Babylonians were. And they carry him off in cuffs, okay? So this was no picnic for the Israelites. But the goal, the Babylonians were so, so smart in this, you know, as a world power, they had tried every strategy for dominating the world. They had tried killing everybody. They had tried oppressing everybody. They had tried pushing them down. And what they found was, if you push them down, they tend to push up, (laughs) right? If you arrest them, they try to break out. And so their strategy was this. They knew that culture flows from the top down. They knew 
that um, culture flows generally from the people with power and wealth and influence, the elite, and then it flows through influencers like artists and musicians and screenwriters and poets and that kind of thing, okay? In fact, look with me back at the text. Do you notice who are the people who are exiled here? It says um, here in chapter 29 that the king was taken, verse, this is verse two, the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials, the craftsmen, the metal workers, they had departed from Jerusalem. Now departed is a nice way of saying they were taken into exile. They were the first ones, okay? The cream of the cultural crop, the elites of uh, Jerusalem, they were the ones who were taken first. In fact, other uh, passages in Jeremiah will attest to the fact that the poor and the peasants actually didn't go. They were left in Jerusalem. So the, Bab the Babylonians knew this, and, and sociologists and, and cultural anthropologists have figured this out in later years, that culture flows from the top down. And if you can get the elites of a culture, okay, the intellectuals and the politicians and the people with power and, and status and wealth to imbibe in your culture, it will flow from them into the next layer of culture, and soon enough, you, it will be adopted by everyone. If the Babylonians could get the Jewish elite to become more Babylonian, then over time, they would lose their identity as the people of God, and the Jews would be eradicated, and they wouldn't have to raise a sword to kill a soul. Their goal was to get the Jews to adopt their social and their intellectual and their spiritual norms. In fact, in the book of Daniel, Daniel was actually one who was taken into captivity. You, I don't know if you've read the book of Daniel, but Daniel was a young man at the time, and they actually changed his name to a Babylonian name, uh, and then they educate him. They send him to school. Why would they do that? To indoctrinate him in their culture, you see? So the whole point was, if we can have the Jewish people adopt our culture, then they will lose their identity as God's people and we won't have to worry about them ever again. I want you to know exactly the same type of thing happens today. Culture includes formally articulated ideas and beliefs but it also includes assumptions about the default settings of life, how life works. And culture over time orients how we think and how we decide and how we behave and how we live. And, and the practices and the habits of a particular culture form us into certain kinds of people. There's a, a phenomenon called social contagion. I don't know if you've heard of it. But the idea is, much like a virus spreads through a community because it's passed from one to the next, that social norms and, and understandings and ideas pass from one to the next and it ends up infecting, so to speak, everyone. Now that can happen positively or negatively. And here's the, here's the I talked last week a little bit about how um, culture is sort of under the surface in a lot of ways. It's almost subversive. Um, culture can shape us most deeply by what it considers normal. I'll give you a few examples. Um, I, I mentioned this last week, but in 2007, the iPhone was born. But in our world today, smartphones are ubiquitous, are they not? It's almost weird to not have one. 
It's just assumed. We, we do ministry in southern uh, Tanzania in, in what is in many ways a third world country and everybody's got a smartphone because it's the way of the world now, right? And it's countercultural to go back to a dumb phone. <laughs> Almost no one has house phone lines. I mean, my kids have all grown up in our house and we've never had a landline in 16 years, okay? Um, Backup cameras on your car. No one would ever think of buying a vehicle without a backup camera today, right? It's just a cultural norm. And they've only been around for maybe the last uh, six, seven, eight years or so, uh, maybe 10 years. When you hear about a new television show, your first question is not what channel is it on, it's what service are you streaming it on, right? Okay, I mean, those are all sort of mm, neutral, I suppose although I think we could argue for the folly of smartphones, but um, that's another sermon. <laughs> Here's another one. When I was a teenager, um, Ellen DeGeneres had a sitcom. And on her sitcom, she came out as a lesbian. She was the first openly gay actress to play an openly gay character on television. And it was a, there was a firestorm, if you remember, back in those days. And now, it is assumed that any new television show is going to have at least one openly gay character. It's a cultural norm. So there are many ways that culture shapes us deeply by what it considers normal. Now, many people rightly recognize that culture exhibits aspects of truth and goodness and beauty. We talked about that, right? Like creation is structurally good. It was created before the fall of man. And so therefore there are aspects even in our world today that reflect the beauty and the glory of God that are true and beautiful and, and help and point us to God himself. But it is also dangerous for us not to see that culture is also corrupted by sin. And many of us become unthinking adopters of whatever the current of the culture is. And we absorb without critically thinking about it. We interact with and incorporate into our lives the dominant beliefs and ideologies and trends of our cultural moment without even really discerning or thinking about it. And so what ends up for us, even as followers of Jesus, is that we end up becoming a people who mirror the culture that is aligned to a competing kingdom. And when Christians, when groups of Christians, when churches adopt the ways of a culture, they lose their prophetic voice in that culture because they look so much like the culture, they have nothing to offer the culture. Are you following me? So it is, it is important for us to be wise and discerning about what we adopt into our lives from the culture and what we push back on. So there's a danger in cultural adoption, just sort of unadulterated, unthinking, uncritical adoption of every way of the culture. But there's also folly in cultural abstention. That's what I'm gonna call the next point. So if you're a note taker, the folly of cultural abstention. Now there's another agenda at play here. So we saw the Babylonians and their desire to absorb the Jewish people into their culture so that they lose their identity as God's people. But there's another agenda at play, and that's the agenda of some of the Jews. 
instead of adoption, many of the Jews wanted abstention, non-involvement. Now, why would they want that? First of all, they were a very small minority in the culture of Babylon. Um, many scholars think that Babylon was the first ancient city to grow over 200,000 people. Meanwhile, the first wave of Jews that were exiled to Babylon were under, some think under 5,000. Um, and if you count that as just being the men, it's probably more likely that it was 10 or maybe 15,000, no more than 20. So you got a, you've got a city of over 200,000 people and a group of Jews who are maybe 20,000 people, more likely that they're five to 10,000 people. So they're a very small minority in this culture. Secondly, the Babylonians are wicked. The city was infested with false idols. In fact, um, on, on the pathway into the city, which the Jews would have walked, there were these big stone um, sidewalk pavers, basically, right? Imported from another country, limestone. And inscribed on every paver on the way into the city was to the honor of Marduk, to the honor of Marduk, who was their primary god in Babylon. The Babylonians practiced despicable and immoral things. And so here you have God's people who are sinners themselves, but are used to a certain way of life, and they're brought into a world that is radically different, and in many ways, so much more immoral and idolatrous than the world that they came from. And so many Jews became convinced that the easiest way for them to keep their identity as God's people is to keep distance from the Babylonian culture. Stay separated. In fact, turn back with me to chapter 28 of Jeremiah. I want to read just the first four verses here and, and listen to what Hananiah, who is another prophet, says. In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, it's a lot of math, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and the people, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Here's what he's saying. Hananiah, a prophet, he raises up. He says, God is going to destroy Babylon in the next two years. He's taken us home. So instead of being ingrained in the culture of Babylon, here's what we need to do. We need to insulate ourselves. We need to keep our distance. We need to only interact with the culture of Babylon when necessary because God's coming and he's smoking those fools and we're going home, baby. Here's the problem with Hananiah's prophecy. God never said it. If you go back to chapter 29, in verses eight and nine, which we already read, God says this, do not let your prophets and your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. God never spoke to Hananiah, but Hananiah is saying, thus says the Lord, he's coming for us, so let's not have anything to do with these people. Now, believe it or not, this abstentionist mentality also exists among many Christians today. Because ideas have consequences, 
And because culture tends to form us into its own image, many believers are tempted to withdraw from and protect themselves from the culture. And there are a myriad of ways that you probably can already think of in which this happens. I wanna point out two specific things that I see often. One is escapism. Uh, I said this to our membership class yesterday morning. Um, many people view culture like a public restroom. Get in, get out, don't touch anything. Right? We don't want to get any of the world on us. So just go in, do your business you got to do, get out of there and don't touch anything. And that's how we interact with the culture around us. That's how many people think. Or we create our own let's just be honest, really weird subcultures. So it's, let's not go to the coffee shop. Let's create our own Christian coffee shop because everybody knows that a Jesus latte is better than a worldly latte. Actually, most of the time it's worse. Let's be honest about that. When I was a, when I was a, a new believer, I got saved when I was about 16, walked away from the church. And so I was really in my like early 20s when I started walking with the Lord. And what was all the rage at that time were the Christian t-shirts that were a mimic of a corporate logo. You remember these? I, man, I wish I should have, I, I should have got some pictures for you. So like, instead of Sprite, it said Spirit. <laughs> or instead of Reese's, like Reese's cups, it said Jesus. And I'm like, first of all, I've never seen anyone wearing a Reese's peanut butter cup t-shirt that's orange. Secondly, what does orange even go with? And thirdly, what are you doing? <laughs> or, so just, I mean, why don't we create our own Christian ice cream parlors and hardware stores, right? And bookstore, oh, we already did that. They didn't last, <laughs> right? So and I'm not knocking Christian bookstores in, on principle, um, but all of us Christians thought Amazon had better prices, apparently. So, so escapism is one route that we take. But the other route that's becoming increasingly popular in our current cultural moment is antagonism. We see culture and those that are caught in its current as an enemy to be defeated. And rather than throwing out life preservers to those who are just caught and, and going downstream with the culture, we launch scathing attacks. We rightly recognize that culture is corrupted by sin. We rightly recognize we are in a real battle. Ephesians 6 reminds us of that, doesn't it? God has given us armor for a real battle against evil. We rightly identify that there are twisted and harmful trends and ideologies and beliefs in our culture. But we foolishly display a greater fear of man than we do of God. And we fail to see that the world is still structurally good. Yes, it is corrupted by sin, but there is still stuff in our culture that is good and true and beautiful. There are things in our culture that can be adopted. There are things in our culture that can be adapted. And there are things in our culture that must be rejected. 
But I think most condemningly on us as followers of Jesus, we fail to obey what Jesus himself said was the second greatest commandment in all the Bible, loving our neighbor. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's Deuteronomy 6. We just talked about it earlier, okay? And he said, and the second, unprovoked. They didn't ask him what's the top two. They said, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest commandment is to love God and, by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we are commanded to abstain from all evil. We are commanded to abstain from the passions of our flesh that wage war against our souls. I've read the Bible for a long time. I read it annually. I have for the last multiple number of years. And I might be wrong about this, but I can't remember a single place where Jesus won anybody to the kingdom by attacking them and shaming them. You cannot love your neighbor while you are engaged in a cultural war. You can't. Now again, there are things we should abstain from, right? There's no Christian way to view pornography. For example, that's evil. We must abstain from it. We must fight against it because of the harm that it does to those who view it and also those who are caught up in that industry. But if you happen to have a neighbor across the street who was in that industry, she's not your enemy. She's a person made in the image of God who needs to be loved. So the folly of cultural abstention. All right, you guys with me so far? I don't know if you wore your steel-toed boots this morning. I feel like I'm stepping on some toes, but... Just buckle up because we're getting used to it. Last thing I want you to see here is uh, the call to cultural engagement. Let's look at what God actually says. What is God's agenda? We saw the agenda of the Babylonians. We saw the agenda of the Jewish people. What's God's agenda? Well, it's not to fully adopt the culture of Babylon and to lose their identity, but neither is it to completely abstain from the culture of Babylon to keep their identity. Look at verse 4 in chapter 29 with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. That's multiple generations, isn't it? Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare. That word can be translated as shalom. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God's desire is not for them to adopt wholeheartedly the culture, nor is it for them to abstain from every aspect of the culture. God's desire is for his people to engage with the Babylonian culture while keeping their identity as God's people. Build houses, plant gardens, start families. Do you hear echoes of the cultural mandate from Genesis chapter three here? He says, in other words, you're gonna be here a while. 
We saw later in the text, it's 70 years they're going to be exiled. Now think about this. If you were an adult, think about whatever age you are right now. And God said, where you are is where you're going to be for the next 70 years. That means most of us are going to live out the rest of our lives as exiles. Most of the Babylonian exiles were going to live out the rest of their days in Babylon. They would never go home again to Jerusalem. And so he says, seek the shalom of the city. Shalom carries with it this idea of flourishing in every category, social and economic and spiritual. Seek the welfare, seek the shalom, seek seek the peace and the prosperity of this city that I sent you into. That had to be shocking to the Israelites. Why? It's Babylon. (laughs) Babylon was awful. In fact, at the end of the Bible, if you've read the book of Revelation, Babylon becomes synonymous with everything horrible. And yet God is saying to these people and God is saying to us right now, I know that it's hard and I know how hard it is. But that is where I have sent you with my blessing to be a blessing. My friend Ray, uh, he's a pastor, he's retired now, but he pastored in Nashville for a long time. Um, In preaching this text, he had this quote, and I'm quoting him just so you don't think I had a good idea. Um, Listen to what he says. He says, God is saying to this people, I am giving you an address in the suburbs of hell, and I want you to create beauty for my glory and for their good in this hard place. (laughs) Now, as followers of Jesus, this should not surprise us because this is the ministry of Jesus, is it not? (laughs) What does John 1 tell us? The word took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And what did he find here? Wickedness and idolatry and injustice and slavery to sin and spiritual apathy And Jesus did not fully imbibe in the culture, though he was accused of it, wasn't he? The religious people called him a a drunkard and a glutton, didn't they? But neither did he withdraw wholeheartedly from the culture. You know what he actually did? He wept over the city. He wept over the sin of the people. And Jesus came bringing the kingdom of God to earth. When he came, he says, repent and believe that the time is at hand. The kingdom has come. And he inaugurates the kingdom of God. Truth with grace, justice with mercy, humility with boldness, authority with meekness, light in the darkness. He celebrated the good and the true and the beautiful of whatever town and village he walked into. And he healed the brokenness in that place and he corrected the corruption in that place. He was the only perfectly, he was the only human who perfectly was in the world, but not of it. And ultimately, Jesus sought our welfare, even at the cost of his own life. I'm gonna read for you a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 53. You don't have to turn there, but this is verses four and five. Listen to what this prophecy about Jesus says. Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom, peace. And with his wounds or by his wounds, we are healed. So that those who would receive with the empty hands of faith, the finished work of Jesus in his perfect life and sacrificial death and glorious resurrection are saved from our sins. We are forgiven We have the shalom of God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that that, that is in us and guides us. And he places a new call on our lives. We are not, John 17, taken out of the world, but he says he sends us into the world, yet we are sanctified or set apart by the truth of God's word. So what does that mean for us? Flip with me really quickly over to Matthew chapter five. And I promise I'll be done. You guys hanging with me? We looked at this just briefly last week. We're going to look at it just briefly this week, and then we'll kind of camp out in some of these places in the following weeks. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 13. Speaking to his disciples, and therefore speaking to you and I, these are the words of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Here's what he says. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be, how, it's, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people take a lamp And put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Steadfast Church, it is not a, it is not an accident that you are in Asheville in the year 2023. Or wherever you live. Do not resent your situation. God says, accept it. It's from me. I have sent you into exile in this place at this time. You know, all Christians in the New Testament are called exiles, sojourners, foreigners, right? This is not ultimately our home. Yes, God will remake the physical world, but the world as it is right now is not our home. We are strangers and exiles. We are sojourners in this world. So he says, don't resent your situation. Embrace it. It's from me. You are sent here or you have been kept here in order to be salt and light, which means to make a difference. To overcome evil, not with other evil, but to overcome evil with good. And I know this is a a bit of a stretch for the way Jesus is meaning it, but salt is just as salt is no good to your food in the pantry. You ever eat like French fries that haven't been seasoned and you're like, what the, what? Right? Just as salt is no good in the pantry, light is not helpful if it tries to be like the darkness. So as one theologian said, we are, church, the model home of a new neighborhood that God is building that will last forever. 
And there is no greater calling and privilege than to represent Jesus, our King, in this culture at this time and to love our neighbor. But here's the thing. In order to faithfully engage in this world, we have got to be people who are formed by the values of the kingdom of God. Okay, the mistake of the missional movement in the last 20 years is that people quickly were saved and sent right back into the world and they were idiots when it came to theology and how to understand rightly their place in culture. And we did all kinds of foolish things to win people to Christ. We have got to be formed by Jesus first. We've got to be formed by the kingdom of God first and then sent back into the world as his disciples. So this is what we're going to be doing in the coming weeks, okay? We are, we are going to be understanding what it means to be a certain kind of people in this world. For example, next week we're going to be talking about identity, not gender identity. We'll get to that later. We're talking about identity proper, okay? And what does it mean for us to be the people of God in a world that is searching for identity? Then we'll look at things like being a people of wisdom in a world of folly. We'll look at being a people of purity in a world of sensuality. You see what I'm saying? We're going to understand what kind of people does the kingdom of God shape us into being, and let's be that kind of people as we go into a world that is the opposite. That's the trajectory of this series going forward. So we built a foundation, okay, with the gospel movements. We put up some, we've framed up some walls today to give us some structure with our understanding of three views of culture. And from this point forward, we'll be looking at specific issues. Next week is identity. And we'll go looking at what does it look like to be a certain kind of people in a certain kind of world. Make sense? Okay. So I got a few questions we'll throw up on the screen. These questions I want to tell you are primarily for community group. They're not necessarily personal reflection questions, although they can be used as that, but um, I'm hoping that for those of you who are in groups, you will take these questions with you, group leaders, that you will use these questions. Uh, you might come up with better ones, and that's fine. Um, if you're not in a group, groups started officially last week. Some of them will be starting this week, but there's still room in almost every group, okay? So you can go on our website and um, the info hub, info.steadfastavl.org, or click the info hub button on the website and you'll find uh, an access to our groups there, and I hope that you'll jump into one. First question is this. What can it look like to see the good in culture without accepting every belief and practice? Okay. What does it look like to see the good, the true, the beautiful, the things that reflect the character and nature of God, but not accept every belief and practice that our culture throws at us? Secondly, and the opposite, what does it look like to recognize sin's corruption of culture without rejecting every aspect? Like these are our two tendencies, right? Accept everything or reject everything. And it's neither of those, I don't think. What does it look like to recognize sin's corruption without rejecting every aspect? Third, how does the call of the gospel to engage culture press me towards greater dependence on Christ? Like this is where the rubber meets the road because so many of us are fearful about how we engage with culture and, and fear should drive us to the perfect love of God, which casts out all fear. So how does the gospel call me to engage culture towards greater dependence? And then last, to what degree am I personally being formed by the values of the kingdom of God, specifically as outlined in the Sermon on the Mount? Now, of course, the Sermon on the Mount is not the exhaustive teaching of the kingdom of God, but it's a start. It's from Jesus himself. To what degree am I being formed by the values of God's kingdom through the Sermon on the Mount?
okay? So I'm gonna leave these questions up on the screen for you. I'm gonna pray for you, and then we're gonna respond to the Lord. We do that in a few ways here at Steadfast. First will be through communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to these tables. We'll start on the back rows, make our way forward one row at a time. You can take the bread, dip into the juice or the wine, whatever your conscience allows, as a remembrance that Jesus came, lived among us perfectly, died in our place for our sins to renew us, redeem us, and set us apart to go back into his world. He promises he will come and get us. He will re- he will, we will be with him one day and we will feast with him forever. And so we come in thanksgiving and in gratitude and in repentance to this sacred meal. If you're not a Christian, please stay seated. But for the rest of you, if you, are, if you would like to receive this blessing from God this morning, you're welcome to come to these tables. Uh, as we make our way back to our seats, there are black boxes in the back. If you're new and want to be known, there's a connect card you can fill out. If you have a prayer request, the back side of that card can be used for that. And then uh, there are, uh, if you're a regular or member and you want to give to the mission of God here at Steadfast, those boxes are for giving. Um, so the band's going to come back up, lead us in a few songs, and we are going to get on our way. I love you, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Uh, thank you for just the, the subject matter that you are leading us into. And I pray that you would help us to be a people who are wise and discerning in this cultural moment. To know what we can celebrate that is good and right and true and beautiful and what we must reject, which is wicked and evil and, and not of your kingdom. And how best to love our neighbors in the midst of this world, to show them the beauty and glory of Jesus, to show them the truth of the gospel that they might repent and trust in you as well. Build your kingdom. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We love you. We thank you for this time together. And as we respond now through communion, through repentance and faith, through giving, through singing, would you be honored and glorified? We ask all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus and we pray by the power of God's spirit. Amen. Let's be still for just a moment and then we'll respond through communion.